Hello and welcome back. Thanks for following along for this season two of Music for PhDs. So this season is all about music and language, how they're similar, ways that they're different, and how they impact our emotional lives. We've talked about music not being a universal language, but music is universal, or at least close to it, across human cultures. And even some non-human cultures. My name is Amy Kingdon. I'm the staff writer and researcher at Hackai Magazine in Victoria, British Columbia. And I just finished co-producing The Sound Aquatic, which is a podcast that we did all about animals under the water and how they use sound. And I'm also working on a book uh, looking at sound in the ocean more broadly and how it relates to ecosystems. Underwater, sound is really like the most important sense for a lot of animals. Above the water, we kind of think of sight and like seeing as being the dominant thing. But under the water, below about 200 meters, there's very little light in most water. And then like in coastal waters, there's really like a lot of murkiness and a lot of, you know, stuff. And so if you're an animal in the ocean, sight is not really necessarily going to be great for you. And then, you know, taste and touch and smell like they're only going to be able to give you so much information and only very close by but underwater sound is actually really really useful for one it travels about four times faster underwater than it does above the water and it also goes really really far depending on the right conditions you can actually have sound that goes a thousand kilometers oh, like wow. right across the ocean basin there's toothed whales and there's baleen whales the toothed whales have the higher pitched voices, they use clicks and whistles. They're like the dolphins and the killer whales. And a lot of the times they're using sound to communicate with each other and also to echolocate. So they're kind of using the sound as sonar. And then the baleen whales are like the really big ones, the blue whales and the humpbacks. And those are the ones that have what we kind of famously know of as like whale songs, right? Like the, the whoops and the moans and stuff. So the really crazy thing about the whale songs is that they are really complex and they evolve over time and they change between populations. And this has been one of those massive mysteries of underwater bioacoustics. It seems to be mostly concentrated in the humpback's breeding areas. There's sort of some thinking that it must be somehow related to mating, but there's also a lot of clues that it might not be quite that simple. Like, for example, there's some humpbacks that when everyone else migrates to the breeding grounds, these ones stay behind, but they still sing. It's likely related to breeding, but there's even people that think the song might be some form of elaborate sonar. It might be about like some other social thing. It might be just about group cohesion. It might be just like evolution run amok. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of mystery about it. And it's really, it's really beautiful though.
So you mentioned a few kinds of uses for sound, clicking to echolocate, to navigate, mating calls and communication with, within a social group. The whale songs seem to be sort of in a category of their own. Why, why is that? We don't really know. It might just be sort of an aspect of whale culture that just exists to do whatever music does for any culture, which is maybe not to tell you a specific fact, but like, mm-hmm. could be to make you feel good. It could be to make you look good. It could be just to be interesting. But yeah, whales, whales make calls for a whole bunch of other different reasons. One of my favorite things that I learned when I was talking to some of the researchers was a guy called Hal Whitehead, and he's studied sperm whales down in Dominica. They communicate with clicks. I think they're actually the loudest sound in the ocean, but they're in codas. They're like Morse code. And what he's been able to find is that some groups of sperm whales will identify themselves with this coda, and then like another group of sperm whales in the same area will have a different coda. Like there's a different language. Yeah, like a different Morse code pattern. I think it's like a way of identifying, I am this group, or I am this whale from this tribe, or I am this whale from this group. And then, you know, sometimes whales will call just to stay close to each other because it's really murky or it's dark. And that's actually really important for mother and baby whales. Most whale species will kind of murmur to their babies and their babies will like murmur back. And that's mostly just because like, whales need to stay close to their babies. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And if you lose track of your baby and you're a whale, that's really bad. One thing I thought was interesting was how Amy distinguished between music and language for whales. Whale songs are sort of defined by the fact that they're not communicating specific information. And I loved Amy's point that whale songs exist to serve the same purpose as music from any other culture. So they're not used to communicate a specific fact but to make yourself feel good or to impress others, to demonstrate your group membership or to help with social cohesion. I love the idea of whales singing to make themselves more interesting. (laughs) Like teenage (laughs) whales trying to be cool, right? (laughs) Totally. And Amy's point that different groups of whales have different patterns of communication that get passed down and change over time. That tells me that whales are learning from each other and their communication is evolving. So whales have a musical culture, which is interesting because when we think of animals and music or singing, for most people, I think it's birds that come to mind first. Oh, absolutely. I've been woken up at 5 a.m. every day this week by birds. An unexpected joy of COVID has been bird watching, but sometimes the downside is... More bird watching. <laughs> Continual bird watching. <laughs> right. And like whales do, birds vocalize for pretty similar reasons. They might communicate, they defend territory, and the example we all know best is they attract mates. So for some birds, singing can take almost as much energy as flying, which means it must be evolutionarily important to spend all that energy singing. There has to be a value to it. And more or less, the value is self-advertising. 
There's no evidence that complex bird songs, more demanding performances convey more information, but better singers tend to secure mates faster. So that's the payoff. And by the same token, birds who are better singers also tend to have larger territories. So Amy talked about the whale songs evolving over time and being passed down or between populations. Do bird songs get taught in that same way? Yeah, lots of birds learn to copy other members of their species. So the songs of some species vary by region, just like Amy described with whales. Mostly birds are learning from other birds. Young birds imitate their parents, using a process pretty similar to what we've talked about with human babies. The sponge method. Yeah, baby birds are learning from what's around them, which is mostly members of their family. So if they're raised in isolation, sometimes baby birds still sing, but the songs they produce are pretty strange. So songs are usually passed down by exposure and imitation. We call it vocal learning. And among birds, parrots are pretty unique because they're one of the few that will actually learn from and copy other species, like humans. And they're such good social learners that some of them even copy environmental sounds, like sound effects from a television if they live in a house, um, because they're such good mimics. Parrots are really good mimics. Have you ever seen the video of the parrot who dances to Willow Smith's I Whip My Hair Back and Forth? (laughs) (laughs) It's a blast from the past. Yeah, I have seen that. Uh, Birds on YouTube Who Dance was kind of a subgenre for a lot of years. And I think for at least five years, every public lecture I gave, I started with a video of Snowball the Dancing Cockatoo, (laughs) sort of the original famous dancing bird. And there's actually a science story there. Snowball was dropped off at a bird rescue along with a CD that said these are his favorite songs. And the the bird rescue sort of wondered what that meant. So they put on the recording uh, of his favorite song, which was Backstreet Boys, to give you an idea how long ago this was. They found that when the music started to play, Snowball would bob his head and lift up his feet one at a time and boogie from side to side. (laughs) So he was dancing. And they didn't know maybe he was dancing along with another person in the room, but They didn't understand what was going on. They posted videos of Snowball to YouTube, and scientists heard about this and wanted to do an extensive study of Snowball and his dancing. How do you do an extensive study of a parrot's dancing skills? (laughs) Is this like America's Got Talent, but for birds? (laughs) Snowball was only competing against himself here. So the scientists wanted to test if Snowball was just moving because the music was on or if he was syncing his movements to the music. So they sped up and slowed down his favorite song and then videotaped what he did. And they found that absolutely, yes, he was changing the tempo of his movements to match the song. So when the song was sped up, he moved faster. He wasn't perfect. He was only accurate about a quarter of the time, but it was way better than chance. And this was something that before we thought only humans were able to do. So Snowball is a bad dancer, but a dancer nonetheless. Once the scientists had established that Snowball really was dancing the obvious next step was to go back to YouTube. They looked for other birds who might be doing the same thing. And they found evidence that over a dozen species of birds could dance to music. 
Mostly they were parrots, and we don't know what makes parrots so special exactly, but it might be that ability they have to learn from other birds and humans and TVs. Parrots learn new sounds by imitating them and producing vocalizations. Humans are the only primates who do this, and it's an essential part of our ability to speak. But dolphins, birds, and whales are all vocal learners. So we're talking about parrots and birds and whales here. Are there other animals that dance or have a favorite Backstreet Boys song? There aren't too many animals that dance, but there have been a couple studies to see if animals can synchronize by tapping along to music. There have been some studies with macaques, which are a kind of monkey, to see if they can tap along. But macaques are smart and they react really fast. So it's not clear if they're actually synchronizing or if they're just reacting really quickly. That said, they can synchronize to visual information, if not auditory information. So the jury's kind of still out on that. Researchers have suggested that maybe monkeys are able to do it. They're just not motivated enough to do it (laughs) without being specially trained. Yeah. Bees dance, um, but not to music. They do it to communicate information about food. So they can sort of wiggle their bums around to tell other bees how far or close sources of foods are and even how the food source is oriented relative to the sun, but it doesn't involve any sound. Amazing. I am absolutely entranced by the idea of fuzzy bee bum wiggles communicating food sources (laughs) to other bees. Other animals do communicate by making sounds that are a bit closer to language uh, because they have specific references. So vervet monkeys have distinct calls that mean leopard or eagle or snake. And we know that they're distinct because when one monkey calls out the leopard call, the monkeys have different reactions. So if somebody calls out leopard, the other monkeys (laughs) run into a tree. Whereas if somebody calls up eagle, they tend to either look up at the sky or run into the bushes and hide. Wow. So they're communicating information there, but it's only these single sounds, these alerts. So there's no combinations or syntax. Okay. So they're not combining words into sentences like parrots do. Right. Talking parrots are sort of the exemplar here. And we've said that they're vocal learners and they learn from their environment. So there's lots of anecdotal stories about parrots learning to repeat bad words, particularly. (laughs) Um, Alex the African Grey Parrot is sort of the most famous of all of these. He had an enormous vocabulary. He could count, he knew colors, and they say he was about as cognitively advanced as a five-year-old child. Fun fact... I think Alex the parrot could also dance. So that same team of researchers did some work with him and found that he would dance to music and change speeds, although he wasn't quite as good as Snowball was. (laughs) So because he had such a big spoken vocabulary, he could talk and he could answer questions about the number of objects or the color of objects, things like that. Um, But after 30 years of intensive study with scientists who loved him a lot, he died unexpectedly in 2007. So it was a a big loss. And some of the questions that we would like to have answered, we we haven't had a chance to do that since Alex has been gone. Poor Alex. 
So if parrots, dolphins, and whales are vocal learners, why is it only parrots who have learned to imitate human language and, you know, drop F-bombs and stuff? (laughs) Well, the limiting factor of studying speech in a lot of animals tends to be the voice box. So there's a physical limit to the types of sounds they can create. Dolphins and whales do things like click and chirp and hum because those are the sounds they're physically capable of producing. For sure. But what about chimps and apes? They're more physically similar. I think 96% genetics shared or something like that. Uh, And also very intelligent. So what's the limiting factor there? Good question. Um, Yeah, great apes have lips and teeth and tongue and voice box that are pretty similar to humans. So anatomically, it seems like they should be able to speak. But as far as I know, no one in history has ever taught an ape to produce spoken language type sounds. It seems like they don't have the necessary muscular control. So their brains are not speech ready in the way that humans are, even if their bodies are ready. Chimps do communicate a lot via calls and facial expressions and gestures. So we know that they're motivated to convey information and communicate. And researchers did try and teach a chimpanzee to speak. Um, As early as the 1930s, there was a case of two researchers who raised a baby chimpanzee and their newborn son alongside one another in their home. But they had no success teaching the chimpanzee to talk. So fun fact, there's a 2013 novel by Karen Joy Fowler called We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. And this is a huge (laughs) spoiler alert here, but the novel is a fictional take from the perspective of the human child, the sibling raised alongside the chimpanzee. For a bunch of reasons, ethics and logistics among them, raising a baby and a chimpanzee together isn't a great idea. It didn't work out well in the book either, I don't think. Okay, not a surprise. But researchers didn't give up. Since muscular control of vocal apparatus is maybe the limiting factor of chimps not being able to speak, the next thing scientists attempted was to teach them sign language. So they started with a chimpanzee in the 1960s and didn't meet with a lot of success. Other researchers have tried with Coco the gorilla, who was pretty famous in pop culture for a while, and Nim the chimpanzee. These animals could acquire sometimes over a hundred different signs, and a few of them learned to combine two or three signs together. Nim orange, nim orange, asking for food. Um, But unlike human babies, the sentences never got longer or more grammatically complex over time. So the longer phrases were just more repetitive. And later on, analysis of video footage showed that Almost every sign that the animals were producing was directly influenced by whatever the human trainers had just said or done. So they were being prompted a bit. The most successful case out of all of these was a bonobo named Kanzi. And Kanzi was the baby of another bonobo who was being studied in a research lab. And his mom never really learned any sign language, but Kanzi picked up some of it as a baby. And they think maybe he reached the level of comprehension of a two-year-old child, even though his mom never really took to it. So in the end, human language is definitely socially transmitted. And even though some of these animals learned bits of language-like information and could sign, they didn't learn it the way babies do. They never used it the way humans do, and they didn't directly pass it down to their offspring. So there wasn't a lot of social transmission. So in conclusion, 
birds sing, but not like us. Bees dance, but not quite like us. It's probably much cuter. Parrots <laughs> talk and apes use sign language, but again, not quite like us. Does that sum it up? Yep, that's about it. Communication and music exist for lots of species and they serve many purposes, but humans are pretty unique. Music and language are an essential part of being human almost everywhere. They're so essential that we've sent music to outer space as part of the Voyager golden record for the aliens to find. (laughs) The record includes things we think are important for them to know, including the usual old white man suspects that we've talked about, like Bach (laughs) and Mozart. But it also has Javanese court music and Senegalese percussion, Peruvian wedding songs, and greetings in dozens of different languages. And also, whale songs. The phonograph sent into space includes an excerpt from Roger Payne's 1970 album, Songs of the Humpback Whale, along with recordings of laughter, heartbeat, and a mother and baby. That's amazing. Sunita, I think we've kind of come full circle since episode one. All season, we've talked about how language and music are powerful ways that we communicate ideas, transmit emotions, and share experiences. And all through sound waves, just hitting your eardrums. This season, I've had a lot of fun learning about all the ways that music and language overlap or don't. And I've had a lot of fun painting to all kinds of different soundscapes. Live painting to spoken word poetry or whale songs or children's music was different and challenging in all the best ways. For this final episode of the season, I painted to Solo Whale, which is the first track from that 1970 album, Songs of the Humpback Whale. What really struck me was how much the sounds change over the course of nine minutes. Maybe I just had the image of a teenage whale singing to be cool, but I felt like I was listening to someone just playing around with the sounds. It starts off with a few mournful kind of cries, and then some clicks and some rumbling. Honestly, it sounds like an orchestra warming up in the pit. As the track progresses, you hear a particular call repeat getting higher and higher, before it abruptly changes to a totally different kind of sound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
it was fascinating to make marks while listening to this. Because I was thinking of how quickly sound travels underwater, I actually used a straw to blow around the inks and the watercolors. I'm really pleased with the final painting. I look at it and see a cacophony of underwater sounds and signals. This entire season, I have loved getting to know the stories behind these soundscapes, and it changed how I heard them. I listened deeper, paid more attention to how I felt, and got to create a visual record of the time I spent with them. I hope you enjoyed listening and learning along with me. As always, you can find show notes, the paintings, and their process videos up on my website and social media, Instagram and Twitter for Music for PhDs. A big thank you to all of my fabulous guests, to hashtag Dr. Kate, and to you, the listener, for joining us on the second season of Music for PhDs, the art project disguised as a podcast. 